Have you ever been desperate? Have you ever been so hopeless about circumstances in your own life that you weren't quite sure where you would find provision or maybe where you would turn? I assume that some of you, as you sit there right now, are desperate about some area of your own life. We, we know desperation whenever we're faced with impossibility. Now, for a five-year-old, that comes when they can't tie their shoe. It gets different when you're older, when you lose the job, when the marriage feels impossible, when you're not sure about your own life. If you look at history, the greatest innovations and the greatest exploitation has come when people face desperation. But so also does salvation. Desperation has always been the backdrop for salvation. And that's what we're gonna see this morning in Genesis, chapter 42 and 43. In the midst of these chapters, desperation reigns and God does what is humanly impossible. Long chapters, here's the main point. God delights to work his power in the most desperate circumstances. God delights to work his power in the most desperate circumstances to magnify his mercy to all, to magnify his mercy to all. If you are desperate this morning, this is a text of great hope. You'll want your scriptures or your phone opened as we work through this. Let's begin by seeing all of chapter 42 as providence and power, providence and power, desperation and dysfunction. Providence and power, desperation and dysfunction. If we get back into this text, Joseph is now in power. He's the second in command of Egypt. He's the prince. The years of plenty in the famine are over, and now the famine has set in. When, verse 1, Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. The account begins in desperation. This famine is so severe, Jacob believes they are on the verge of death. And these brothers are helpless. They're looking at one another and have to be exhorted. And the family is dysfunctional, divided. Jacob is still playing favorites. He holds Benjamin back. So just 10 of the sons leave Canaan for Egypt. Notice once again, 
God's family to whom God has made the promise of countless offspring is on the verge of death. God's providence is a famine such that this family goes down to Egypt. And they, verse six, show up in Egypt where unknown to them, their brother is the governor. There's no Twitter. There's no news. They have no idea how powerful their brother is. And verse six, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the ground. And there in verses seven to nine, Joseph treated them like strangers, spoke roughly to them. Verse nine, he accuses them of being spies. And notice what else? Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed. Throughout this, Joseph is seeing what they don't see. He sees who they are. He sees the providence and the power of God. This is 20 years after the moment when God decreed to a 17-year-old Joseph through dreams that his brothers would bow down to him. And who would have ever thought by providence and power, this is how God would bring that about. But it's only 10 of them, not all 11. And Joseph is not naive. He doesn't entrust himself to them immediately. His wisdom is seen in the way he treats them. If he asks or he discloses that he's family to them immediately, he would give himself away. So what does he do? He is shrewd in accusing them of being spies. And how do they respond? Verse 10 and 11. Your servants have only come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Honest men, they are not. Honest men would have come clean about the very man who was questioning them a long time ago. Honest men would still not be deceiving their father that their brother died in a tragic accident. These are dishonest men, and they are in a desperate situation. Joseph says in verse 12, you're spies. And they assert again, verse 13, they're sons of one man, one man, but they had, behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Now that is ironic. The one who is no more is the one who is questioning them, the one speaking to them. And in Joseph's wisdom, he is getting the information from them that he wants. So what's he doing? He's testing them. He's seeking information from them. He wants to see who have you become since I last met you. Despite being in desperate circumstances or actually in being desperate circumstances, this will reveal who they are. Look at verse 14. It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Because of them, Joseph ended up in an Egyptian prison. And now because of him, the brothers will end up there as well. 
except suddenly in verse 18, he has a change of heart. Look on the third day, do this and you will live. Joseph says, for I fear God. And he changes that plan from all of them being confined to just one of them being confined. The rest can go and bring the grain as long as they bring back the youngest brothers. Why? So that your words will be verified and you shall not die. So in God's providence, by the power of Joseph, this dysfunctional family is only increasingly desperate. Uh, This is a test that I would call a severe mercy. This is a test of whether these honest brothers who have a history of lying will actually come back or will they take the grain and run? Will they sell out the brother who's forced to stay behind? Will they do what it takes to bring Benjamin back if he is alive, as they say? Are they the same brothers who sold Joseph into slavery or have they changed? It's only in verse 21 that we get the first ray of hope. The brothers said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Finally, these guilty brothers have guilty consciences. Desperation has its own way of forcing them to reckon with divine providence. Now I want you to notice we're given details here that we weren't given back in Genesis 37. There in verse 21, they saw the distress of Joseph's soul. From the depth of the pit, while they were feasting, Joseph pleaded for his life. He begged them for mercy and they would not listen. Can you imagine what it was like for Joseph, who they did not know understood them, to listen to what they were saying. Can you imagine the complexity after all these decades of his emotions? He now has unthinkable power. And he's being forced to go back to a moment so deep to him of desperate weakness in his life. And he weeps. He hides it, but he weeps. There are pains in life that the most extraordinary providences of God will not fully take away. Joseph is in that position of power because these very brothers left him for dead, sold him as a slave to a foreign country. He wants to know, are we reconcilable or not? Can I entrust myself to you or not? So he takes Simeon 
as the hostage. He would have heard Reuben say that he tried to get the brothers not to sin against Joseph. We know from Genesis 34 that Simeon was one of the leaders of the massacre of the Shechemites. Maybe he was the ringleader in this. We don't know. Whatever the reason, he's bound. He's held behind. How is he going to get out if they come back with Benjamin? Will they do what it takes to come back? Or will they sacrifice another brother for their own sake? Are they honest or are they not? Only the test will tell. Verse 26, they loaded their donkeys, they departed. Verse 27, one of them sees that there's money that Joseph arranged to be put into his sack. And verse 28, he tells his brothers, and their heart failed them. They said, what has this God has done to us? The first time in all of Genesis, in this narrative, that the brothers mention God. The very first time they realize that the judgment they're under is from God. It's the first time that we see the brothers are actually changing. They've already said out loud, they understand they're guilty. Now they're understanding judgment is coming to them from God. So down in Egypt, God has providentially worked. And God is not done. They come back to Canaan in verse 29, back to Jacob. And there beginning in verse 30, they rehearse the story to Jacob. They do actually include their own cleaned up edits. Simeon's being held back. Benjamin's got to go back. Except they say in verse 34 that they had to prove they're not spies and so trade in the land. They never mentioned to Jacob their lives are at stake. This is just about economics. And look at verse 35. They emptied their sacks. Behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is a desperate situation. This is a dysfunctional family. Jacob, in verse 36, the way he interprets everything here is in terms of himself. It's my children. It's all come against me. Remember, Reuben is the firstborn. He's desperate to get back into his father's good graces because he sinned with his concubine. And what does he do? He tells Jacob, kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back. Somehow, he thought it was a good idea to say to his father, if I lose Benjamin, you kill my two sons. Not me, my two sons. That's definitely not the one the father wants to entrust Benjamin to. That's what Jacob says. Notice he says in verse 38, my son, not your brother, shall not go down with you for his brother, not your brother, is dead. He's the only one left. Jacob, these are all your sons. You're their father. Simeon is in harm's way at that moment. But if harm comes to Benjamin, it's going to bring Jacob's hair down with sorrow to Sheol. Now think about this. 
in this desperate, dysfunctional, divided family, God promised to bring salvation to the world. And unknown to them, in all of this desperation and dysfunction, God by providence and power is upholding them, accomplishing his plans. We see providence and power here. God providentially brought about this famine. This famine forces this divided, dysfunctional family to work together. So if they're gonna bring salvation and reconciliation to the world, they have to know salvation and reconciliation in their own life. Desperation is everywhere in this chapter. The famine's so severe, they believe they're going to die. I don't want you to underestimate this because you know the story. This famine is so bad that they had to travel hundreds of kilometers to a foreign country to survive. Can you imagine that? They know the promises of God and they're on the verge of death. Death begins this chapter, death ends this chapter. Desperation is all over this chapter. Jacob begins and ends hopeless to death. God providentially brings his people to desperation so that he alone will get glory when he works a mighty salvation. That's how God works. When your providential circumstances seem so confusing, God is working for his purposes in salvation. What is it in your life right now you're not trusting the Lord with? You think he got it wrong. John Flavel in his book, The Mystery of Providence, writes, Providence is wiser than you. You may be confident it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own option. Isn't that what God was doing with this family? Why would you think as you sit there this morning that God has changed? God's providence, his moment-by-moment rule in everything works in power toward all of his salvation purposes. By famine, this family is in the most unthinkable circumstances and they are going to know salvation and reconciliation. And look at God's providence and power in Joseph's life. He's governing Egypt and his government is benefiting the world. And and his brothers, at least 10 of them, have now bowed down to him. And he remembered the dream. If you know the Lord, you know that that knowledge, experiential knowledge, has grown over time. Uh, Joseph had to have these moments over time so that he could come to the place when he would say, God meant everything for good. And by God's power, Joseph, while dealing with his brothers with severe mercy, he's not bitter. He's not being vengeful as he orchestrates all of this. He has power and the right to exact vengeance. And what does he do? He weeps. It is only by God's power that his heart is not hard. And all of his power better than these brothers have any idea. He's working for their good. He's working for God's purposes in the world. 
Do you see that God didn't waste one minute of Joseph's trials? He doesn't waste any of the trials that he gives to his people. All for good. All for good. Can't you see that? These brothers have no idea this man who seems opposed to them is working for their good. So don't fail to see God's power and providence and goodness at work in Joseph. And you can't help but fail to see, you can't help but see that God's power and providence was at work for you. If you're trusting in Jesus long before you were born, this matters for you because it's through this family that's on the verge of death that God's gonna bring salvation. And God worked ahead of time to give life. You're here, we're here providentially. By God's power and purposes for salvation in Christ. We are stewards of time and talents, of life here, jobs, life together as a Lord, the Lord's church. I hope you believe that. I hope this changes your thinking. The God who is not wasting any time in Joseph's life is not wasting any time in your life. And notice that the progress of the gospel is filled with providence in the smallest details. Courage, risk-taking in the place that God has assigned us. Notice the hope of this chapter. God delights to work in the midst of desperation and dysfunction. That is what this family is. They are desperate for food. They're desperate in Egypt. Simeon is in a place of desperation. Reuben is desperate for his father's approval. Jacob is desperate to save Benjamin. He's dysfunctional in the way he shows favoritism. These brothers have essentially murdered their brother. And it took decades for them to start to feel even a little guilt. These were God's people. This is where God delights to work. God can bring life and reconciliation and help to the most difficult circumstances in your life. God was not at work in the same way in the mighty Egyptian empire, but in this broken family. Because desperation is the soil for salvation. Otherwise, it's not salvation. If you're a Christian, you know God has worked in your desperate state. He raised you up spiritually when you could not raise yourself up. And if he's done that, can he not work in your family? Can he not work in your heart or in that sin that just constantly, constantly nags you? He delights to rescue desperate people. When you read this, it should lead you to humility. All that God has done for us makes much of God, not ourselves. Don't ever think God is so fortunate he's got me on his side. Don't think that there was wisdom in you that caused you to trust God. The more that you know yourself, the more you'll see it was the Lord. In my circumstances, in my life, he did for me what I know I could never do for myself. And as you internalize that, you're going to know joy. You're going to know contentment. God's providence is such that he brings about a famine to work in the details of these dysfunctional lives. So in this chapter, it's so filled with desperation and dysfunction, the threat of death, God is at work in power 
to providentially bring about salvation. And that leads us to chapter 43, where we're going to see reconciliation and return, mediation and mercy. Reconciliation and return, mediation and mercy. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judas said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy your food, buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell me, tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother, other brother, and, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Well, here we are. We don't know the time frame. It's probably at least a year later. The grain is gone in verse 1. Jacob says, go back and get more. Now think of this. Simeon has been back in Egypt the whole time. And only now does Jacob say, go back. And Judah steps up and he's contrasted with Reuben. He's sobered, he's sensible. You've got to take Benjamin back or you're not going to see the man's face. And Jacob, who has no concern for Simeon, is only upset, verse 6, that they told the man they have another brother. And Judah whose wickedness we saw so plainly in Genesis 38. He shows a wisdom and a selflessness that would have been unthinkable in that chapter. He takes full responsibility in verse 8 for Benjamin. He says, I will be a pledge for his safety. The last time he offered a pledge, if you remember, was his sinyet, his cord, and his staff, wickedly, to Tamar. Now he's pledging himself his life on the line. Who is Judah? He's a man who has repented, a man reconciled to God, a man ready to return to Egypt. He's a man no longer living just for what he wants in his flesh. By God's power and mercy, Judah is a changed man. His wickedness was on full display that we might see the mercy and power of God to change a man. By the life and the death of God's Son, God can change you. He can give you life 
and spiritual affections and love for him that you don't have. If you're a Christian, God is not done changing you. It feels so slow, but God is committed to it. The fight that you're engaged with, with sin for faithfulness, it's, it's worth it. Give yourself to God's word. Give yourself to God's people. I hope you see the members of this body as a gift from God to you. I hope you don't treat this as a side in your life, but as something you would wholly commit to, as the wisdom of God for you, a gift from God to you. It is God's wisdom. Make use of this gift and this grace from God. God works slowly over time to do what is extraordinary in our lives, such that at some point we we look in a spiritual mirror And we don't even recognize ourselves because we know who we once were. That's what God is doing. Judah is very direct here in verse 10. If we hadn't delayed, we would have returned twice. The leadership that Jacob should be giving, Judah is giving. And so what does Jacob do? He loads them down with gifts. Honey, gum, pistachio notes, and almonds. I think it's amazing. Do you remember that he prepared so much for his reconciliation with Esau? That's what he's doing here. He's filling them with bounty to approach the man in Egypt. And he gives them his blessing. And it's a prayer from a patriarch. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. This is what they so desperately need. They need mercy before the man. This man who ironically is Jacob's son has the power to mediate mercy. They've got to go to Egypt and they are desperate to be reconciled with this man and he must show them mercy. Look at verse 15. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, and he brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys." So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord. We came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. We have brought other money down with us to buy food. We, we do not know who put money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. 
Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So they returned to Egypt with Benjamin and they passed the test. Joseph wanted to see if they would keep the money and leave Simeon behind, make up some kind of story to their father about Simeon like they did with him. These aren't the same men. When Joseph sees Benjamin, he has this private conversation with the steward. He tells him to slaughter an animal because he's going to dine with them. Realize these brothers think they're in great trouble. Explain the mix-up about the money, and the steward replies, verse 23, peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. That's a turning point. Before that moment, they only knew fear, and now they know peace from a foreigner, Joseph's steward, who has clearly heard from Joseph about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He lets them keep their money because it wasn't about the money. It was all a test. He brings out Simeon. Joseph returns, they give him the present, and for the second time they bow down to him. Unknown to them, all 11 brothers have now bowed down to Joseph. If you have the eyes to see here, you can't fail to see that God is keeping his promises. All of them, they confirm that Jacob is well. Verse 28, they bow down again. And then finally, Joseph makes eye contact with Benjamin. Can you imagine what that was like? God, be gracious to you, my son. So filled with compassion, he leaves to weep. I love this picture of Joseph. He has more power than we can fathom, and he is filled with compassion. And he shows them mercy. And he does does give them one final test. There at the end of the chapter, he set them according to their birth order. And he deliberately gave Benjamin, the youngest, five times as much as the others. Will they treat Benjamin with the disdain that they treated him or not? And because they are changed men, they don't. We see this in this return through test after test. They are slowly moving toward full reconciliation with each other and with Joseph. And Joseph, who they sold into slavery, is with wisdom working to bring this broken family on whom the salvation of the world depends back together. Did you notice that the glory of the progress of this chapter? In verse 14, Jacob prayed, God Almighty have mercy, show mercy. And that's what happens here. This high official who unknown to Jacob is his son shows these wicked brothers who have so mistreated him mercy when all they deserved was wrath. It's an incredible story. 
it's not better than the gospel. It points to it. We're like brothers of Joseph. We deserve God's wrath. We have no claim on his mercy. We, We deserve worse than prison. We deserve hell itself. But God, by his son, the God of all mercy and compassion, has given grace. Jesus Christ, his own son, has come and lived and died a sacrificial death. He's done this on the cross for the world to see, and God has raised his son up. He is the one mediator between God and man, and Jesus delights to show mercy. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and come to me. He says, simply turn from your sin and believe in me. Trust me. Take me at my word, and I will give you life. As you read through this story of dysfunction and desperation, do you see how God is working toward reconciliation through the most unexpected mercy? That's what God is really like. He delights to show mercy. In this whole ordeal, when they have to go back to Egypt, return for food, it was about more than food. It was about reconciliation. God worked in power to reconcile this divided family. I do wonder if you recognize in your own life how much you need mercy. How merciful God has been to you. Or do you take his mercy for granted? If you're a Christian, every day you're waking up to untold mercies. You know, new mercies every morning is not just a cute refrigerator magnet. It's reality. If you're alive right now in God's world, God is treating you right now better than you deserve. He is showing mercy to you. People who know that they have received mercy are merciful. The gospel should make us a people who are merciful. People who are compassionate when we have the power to harm others. When's the last time you really took time to consider how God has personally showed you mercy in Christ? Why would you ever keep that at a distance? The mercy he showed you. We live in a place where there's so much exploitation. How great a witness it is to show people mercy, evident mercy. Consider how you, with the power you have, might show someone in your workplace or in your life Mercy. This place can be so merciless with people, treating people like numbers and to be exploited for money. Uh, Showing mercy will open doors for the gospel we can't imagine. Be merciful. Can you imagine the joy these brothers had when they knew they deserved this man's wrath? When he showed them mercy. Every day you and I wake up, that's the truth for us. Christ has reconciled us to God and has mediated mercy to us. And the more we know that, the more joyful we will be. Having repented and loved Benjamin, these brothers are reconciling with each other. They've been showered with mercy. This account begins with a famine, with God's family on the brink of death, Now, can you imagine one long distance day in the future when they would all look back on this 
and they would see so clearly God's providence and power and his mercy to them. It all began with a famine. Did you see how it ended? There's the brothers feasting, drinking, filled with joy. This is the God who delights by his providence and power to raise up and to reconcile desperate people and to mercifully bring his people to a feast where we will know everlasting joy.